It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. You ever been to Ten Sleep, Chris? I have not ever been to Ten Sleep. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a hole in my resume, although just a very small one because it's kind of a new crag. It's not like the New River Gorge or something like that. I had uh, never been there until two weeks ago now, mm-hmm. and it's awesome. I see why people like it so much, and it's just like slammed with climbers. Um, yeah, it's it definitely can- hot. Yeah. Like literally and figuratively. Yeah. 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 But it can hold a crowd pretty well because there's so many crags. Right. Is it really sunny though? That's a, I hear a slam on it that yeah. it's pretty sunny. Like you got to wait much of the day for most many of the, of the cliffs. Yeah. Most of the crags go into the shade at like one okay. or two. Right. And then you just climb till seven. So. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer. I think there are shady crags in the morning, but it doesn't seem like people are interested in going to those. Right. But yeah, I had a good time. The The climbing was precisely how I imagined it was going to be. But the beauty of the canyon was, I thought, really, that really surprised me. Mm-hmm. It's just like very grand and big and open and awesome. But we had a funny incident on the first day that we were out there. Not so much me. I kind of joined my crew halfway through this incident, but I thought I would share it with you to get your take on <laughs> on the, the etiquette of climbing because I feel like the etiquette kind of changes without, you know, our say. And right. uh, that's, I mean, that we just need to put our foot down, I think, a little bit more. So just to paint the picture, this was like a tiny little crag with like one awesome route on it, but a handful of really good routes as well. But like one like five-star route like a 13A or whatever. And my wife, Jen, and her friend and our kids and, you know, like a whole shit show kind of went out to this crag, which fair enough, we've got like, you know, four kids and, you know, it's kind of like a little scene, but the kids are very well behaved, <laughs> as I'm told. And um, there was <laughs> we'd a group- have to get We'd have to get a third party, a non-interested party yeah. to confirm that. Yeah. Because much like dogs... Parents cannot always recognize bad behavior or totally. annoying behavior anyway in their children. So just just saying, let's yeah. just put a caveat. No, I know. I'm, I'm likely they biased. were though. You're, you know, likely they were. They were. They actually were. I mean, I like I said, I joined halfway through this incident, and they were very well behaved. So anyway, the there was like a group of three uh, ladies trying this 13A, and our friend Kate wanted to try it, and she's like, "Hey, like, what's the rotation? Can I like get a turn on this?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, there's only like four or five more people going. And, you know, we kind of like looked and like counted three. And so that number didn't exactly make sense. And what they meant by that was that they were all going to go more than once. Right. And so that happened with three rotations where Kate would like consistently go up and be like, Hey, can I try this route? And they'd say, no, oh, we're not done yet. And they were taking a long time. There was like one girl who wasn't even leading the climb. She was like wearing a helmet and top roping it and not looking at all very solid on the moves, which is fine, whatever. I'm not judging her strength or skill, but it was just part of the, it just added to the like, why can't Kate who could, who could onsite this route just have a turn, (laughs) like do the climb. 
And so that they basically, you know, hogged it all day and then took their draws down and left. And Kate, you know, put her draws up. She didn't onsite it, but then she went back the next morning at 7 a.m. And because it was, was her last day of climbing and she climbed it in the sun, you know, hanging the draws and sent the route on her way out the door. So it was just kind of like a frustrating scene of being like, why is, are, are we like not clued into the etiquette of, of claiming roots or mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I think there was just some questions in my mind. My, my wife, Jen was a little more livid about it. She just right. thought it was like a really obnoxious thing. <laughs> um, but I was like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's like changed now. And like people just feel like this is an okay w- way to act at a crag. What do you think? Well, I'll say, so let's add, let's talk about what the violation actually was. So they're in a threesome, mm-hmm. which means that if they're trying the route, then, you know, two people go between your burn. Let's say you're in the, in the threesome. So that's probably a relatively good amount of rest. So feeling like, okay, well then I I'm ready to try it again. So, so the violation was simply not making space for one more person to jump into the line. Mm-hmm. Let me add, let me get some details. Maybe you don't know them. Was there sufficient downtime between their tries where they may have where they were just like you know milling about, or were they just like no, bang bang bang? No, I wouldn't one, say two, that, three one two three one two three. No, there there was no like big lull. It didn't seem like there were big lulls where okay. they were just like sitting around waiting. You know, they were all pretty efficient and just but just consistently climbing and actually there was another couple there too and and the the dude of this couple he like hopped in so somehow he got a turn i think he was maybe he was part of their crew but okay so there was like basically four people just each of them went two at least three times right some went two but i think most were three times everyone went three times so it was just odd you know so the expectation would be so now there may be a four people banging out this route the expectation would be no matter what you make space for another person. Well, I, well, I mean, what, my, like I said, my, what, what exactly is the violation? Just that they, they didn't make space. I mean, cause if someone I mean, says, Hey, can I go on this route? Right. Do you just say, yeah, after I go, then after we all get like one turn, then you can go. Right. Like, it seems like a, it's a one turn policy where you get a turn and then if someone else wants to go, you should relinquish your, you know, your, I don't know. I just don't feel like you get to go like multiple times while someone is like asking consistently, Hey, can I try this route? Sure. But if, I mean, like I, I kind of get that, but I also sort of do feel like there's a part partially like kindergarten rules that you were there first. And if there was like a lull and their ropes just hanging in the first draw and they're just like eating lunch or something, they're like, no, you can't go. But you know, I'm I'm a little on the fence because again, if there was four people and not three, it's like if you're if you're actually trying to red point the route. I mean, all of us try routes multiple times in a day, so the fact that they were trying it more than once is not the violation because yes. that's just standard. You know, yeah, you exactly. go and you want to if you're projecting something, you're going to do it two, three times in a day. So the violation was not making the space, but. Is there a point at which there is no space? This is not your day. You, you, we, we have four people climbing this thing. I want to try to red point it, which means by the time my other two friends go, I, that's, that's my sufficient rest period. So now I, 
am I supposed to give it up to anybody that shows up? Is your yes. other friend going? How many pe- <laughs> more people do I give it up to yeah. if there's a lineup? It's just you have to let someone try the route if they show up. That well, That's kind of like... Yeah, no, this is my question. Right. I, I'm, I'm with you on posing that question. My, right. Like I said, Jen was not mm-hmm. <laughs> on board with that. She thinks that it's it's a set in stone rule that you know you should let someone else go just as a before courtesy. you go your second time yes personally i think that absolutely and i usually i mean i can't think of a time where i would have just been like no get out of here right if if in fact like that pause you know it wasn't like you know 6 30 and the sun's going down and i want to do another try but it's like yeah middle of the day i'm gonna get another try even if this person wants to do it well that was the deal is that they i mean they did their rotation of three times each and then they were done by like five or something and they Mm -hmm. left Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't like there wasn't enough time in the day to do it it was just kind of it was just like a vibe like you're not coming into our space this is our route right now we've claimed it i guess my judgment call is that yes of course they should have been polite, friendly, and let someone else get in there. But I don't know that you – there's too many variables in the system to, like, say it's a hard and fast rule. Because so, what if – Raid is that – Raid is your friend Kate got done. Another bro walked up and says, hey, can I give it a try? Like, do you then keep making space? Where do you draw the line? Where do you say it's my turn again kind of thing? Do you know what I mean? So you think that it's first come first serve, and if you're first, if it's first come, then it's no serve for anyone else. Well, again, it's like a little bit of first come first serve for me, no serve for you. Yeah, it's like I have kind of a feeling that if you get to the root and you have sort of an agenda that you get the root for the time being. Now, whether you want to be rude or polite, those are two different things. It sounds like there was space, and and they. This is a. This is a. I'll throw a yellow card on this one. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, like we can't say that absolutely. You have to let everybody else go before you get your second try, because you know, on a busy day at a sport crag, that could mean like a couple hours of people being like, "Well, it's my turn now. I wanted to do this route too." So there is a place where you have to stake a claim and get your agenda. You know, if 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 you got there first because so much and it's funny because so much of our ethics around climbing is that like you were there first so but no one does that in rifle i mean like the i disagree i mean i still think that if you had an agenda and rate as you felt like your period of resting was ready and you were ready to go just before that someone said hey you you know can i give this thing a try you would say no i'm gonna go again and then you can try but then if someone else was yeah. sitting on the bench below, you know, pretty hate machine and has been waiting, they're going to go, no, I, you're not going, I'm going. Yes. So it's not like you have to clear the space for someone who shows up to do it. No, that's true. But you wouldn't go to a route with three friends and say, and someone comes up to it and says, hey, can I get a turn? And then you'd say, yeah, but we're going to go. And then she's going to go. And then she's going to go. And then I'm going to go. And then she's going to go. And then she's going to go. And then I'm going to go, and then she's going to go, and then she's going to go, and then maybe I'm going to go again if I don't do the route, and then maybe you can go. Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't say that. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. (laughs) Put it that way, you're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 
she's gonna go then he's gonna go then my chiropractor's here he's gonna go this guy i don't know we picked him up on the way here he's gonna go then he's gonna go again you're yeah. right. Yeah, I was, think you're absolutely right. It was definitely something I hadn't seen. It, it, although in Europe, I have seen something similar where I've seen families like sport climbing mm-hmm. families mm-hmm. show up at crags and they put up a top rope on a route and then that's their top rope right. for the day. Yeah. And no, not they're not even climbing on it all day. They just have that top rope for the day and they're picnicking and mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. You know, eating, snacking on some, you know, charcuterie and right. making, you know, mocha pots of coffee and, and then they top her up a little bit here and there. But I, I don't see that in the U.S. And well, anyway. you know, I was sort of playing devil's advocate or like, you know, I'm the defense attorney for these, these, <laughs> these women. And, and, and to be honest with you, like when I said that, like, Ten Sleep is this modern crag. It's a place like without me ever being there, like the stories I hear from it is that kind of vibe, Mm. you know, also like it's always been in, you know, the last few years it's, it's like the, the swallows returning to Capistrano that about July you start hearing about personal bests from, from 10 sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Like dead as summer. Yeah. Hot as balls. But I just magically climbed two grades harder than I ever have on site, ever. Yeah, the, the grades totally, are. All, it's all totally soft. legit though, because it's my style. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's weird because every July they start popping in on Instagram. Like, did my hardest lead ever? <laughs> like, on site at 13. Yes, you know, first time ever. Yeah, I'm like, huh? huh. It's like a hundred degrees out, <laughs> and the wall has been cooking in the sun all day, and you just waltzed up there and climbed harder than you ever have. <laughs> it's definitely soft, and it's um, it's also it's my very, style. It's also you mean, very straight. Like soft? Is that your style? <laughs> well, it's all it's soft, but it's also straightforward. Right. Like it's very. Like you, it's it's gym. It's very gym reminiscent climbing. Right. You know, right. like. Yeah. So I can see why I can see why it's popular. I right. see why a lot of sport climbers or gym climbers who are breaking into the outdoors go up there. And, you know, if you're in your first few years of climbing, it's like a mega place to go. Yeah. But you know, what's the thing I was about to say is that this issue that you're having is kind of variations of it, but is uh, like one of the most consistent complaints I hear from Indian Creek. Mm-hmm. So on the whole oh, other side of the spectrum, well, not whole other side of the spectrum, Indian Creek is sport climbing. Yeah. It's just with cams, but, uh, uh, you know, a different vibe or a different place. And that's, I mean, that is consistently like, why do these groups of humongous groups of people show up and just lock up these roots all day? Yeah. That happens there. That's a good point. Oh no, it's, it's yeah. happened there for years. It's like, I think it happened. I think it actually was invented there Yeah, because there, like you have this, I mean, you do have this sort of commitment to leading cause it's on gear. And so what happens is you have these great big groups of people where only a couple of people actually lead. And so the top roping thing is it's more not people trying to lead it over and over again. It's that they set up the top ropes and it's this, and that's, I, I mean, I made my chiropractor joke, but I've made that years ago. Like, 
what do you mean? Who's all doing this thing? You know, and like, well, she's going to do it and he's going to do it. And then he wants to, he's going to top rope, but but then he wants to try to lead it, you know, and then she's going to mock lead it on the gear with the top (laughs) rope. And then like, you know, and you're just like, all right, well. And then Brian's coming up with the drone. Yeah. (laughs) To (laughs) to get some foot, get some footy. (laughs) So that's, that's more modern, but I mean, I saw it gone on for years and and it, and it's also been this issue of like leading there is more tricky but also like gear in the olden times, it was like a gear issue. Like people just didn't have the gear to climb right. these things. So, so once the rope was up, then yeah. they could climb all day. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think in, I've always said that Indian Creek, the, the gap between how hard it is to lead versus how hard it is to top rope is, is about as big as any climbing I've ever climbed on. Mm-hmm. You know, the difference between trying to let go and place gear on a layback versus charging up and on a top rope is massive right. so leading there is a big step and, and you know and i've heard these complaints for years it's not really always affected me but you know i've i have kind of fallen back on like well you know they were there first and it's you know it's a free country climbing's free it's like you kind of get to do what you want to do but then there it just comes into rude versus polite versus like you know yeah, I just want. I was curious if this was like a new phenomenon, or if this is just like a freak encounter with some people who, you know, thought that this was the correct way to behave, or were just like being kind of dicks on purpose. Um, I don't know what what was going on, but you know, I think that too. If if the place is busy, and I think that place is really busy now in the summer, yeah, then you do sort of like get your defenses up because you can get hosed, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, even thinking of like a situation you and I have been in where we did have a top rope on something in Indian Creek Mm -hmm. and I being the guy that I am was like, (laughs) cause we weren't actually using it at that moment, but we were preparing to and allowed this crew to come up and lead the climb while we were waiting for the rest of our, our crew to get there. Yeah. It was a big mistake. Yeah. And, and I'm, I've been, you know instructed to never do that thing do that again <laughs> and that it was in an instructor's course and we were waiting for the group to arrive we'd put the top ropes up these folks came up and i said they said hey can we do this and we we're 15 minutes out from climbing or 20 minutes out and yeah. it was like a dinky climb and the guy How could you say not say you yeah. know okay go for it yeah and the in the, exactly the yeah. situation these girls might have been in of like well our sequence is kind of working right now. So right. if we let somebody in and who knows this person dogs on every bolt right. and gets totally shut down, it may be like 45 minutes. They didn't know that minutes. she would basically flick flash it. Right. So I thought these guys were more experienced. And then the dude proceeded to put his girlfriend on there who had never led in, in Indian her Creek. Life. Maybe her life. Or yeah, in Indian Creek. Because this was I a think... beginner route. That's why we we're using it for an instructor's right. course. And, basically proceeded to scare the shit out of all of us where I was honestly like starting to look around at like, how are we going to backboard this chick out of here when she hits the ground? Because <laughs> it was she was a rescue like, course futzing with cams and then kept going and was like sketching. And then she finally like fished in this little cam that was like obviously completely tipped out and like slithered down onto it. And we were all just like, <gasps> And we had all these people that arrived at that point and they were a bunch of beginner climbers by nature because it was a, it was a, you know, it was a beginner crack climbing class. But even, you know, even the most inexperienced of those people knew 
what was happening on this route that was, she was terrifying. Free yeah, that was she. She was free soloing her first lead. Yeah. Anyway, they got it done, and then uh, you know the person who runs the classes has made me swear I would never. <laughs> so now when someone shows up, I'm just I just like form a perimeter around it. Yeah. I'm just like no, bro. Yeah. Although actually I broke the rule last time. <laughs> remember? Yeah, you did. I but it was that. our friend, and yeah. we knew he could actually yeah. climb. So and that was fine. And that's what happened. He went up and he like did it in ten minutes. His buddy yeah. followed it in five minutes and. That was that. that. That was that. Yeah. So it worked out. But so I, I, again, back to defending these gals a little bit or, or the situation, if it's a busy crag. And also, you know, what's funny is that I think women, although in this case it was another woman. It was but I can, women. Yeah. I can see that, you know, if you're used to sort of getting like the bro that wants to kind of, oh, hey, yeah, can I just get a burn on this? You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, it'll only take me a minute like that is just as annoying yeah you know what i mean like so i can think this is a tangent on what we're talking about but this is another thing that annoys me is the person who asks for a belay like very casually like on a on a route that's like a warm-up or something Mm -hmm. like hey can i get a a quick belay on this and then proceeds to like hang dog it for like 45 minutes yeah dude that happened to me once and i was like i will never belay a stranger again could, you couldn't read that. I couldn't read they it. He was not giving off the vibe. Send. He was not giving off the vibe. You just like, thought it was truly a warm up. It would take yes. like five minutes. Bada bing, bada boom. Yes. Lower him down. <laughs> it, I was got completely got sandbagged. Because usually you can you can like vibe it out. And in fact, oftentimes the person who is about to do that has the humility to not just ask someone to belay them on something. I like know. That. So and that's why, just, yeah. if you're going to do that, just at least say, if you just yeah. said like, Hey, this is hard for me. It might take me a long time. Is that okay? I'd be like, yeah, sure. I'll still give you a belay. That's right. fine. But just give me the heads up that this isn't going to be like a five minute investment in my life. Like this is a 50 <laughs> minute investment we're talking about here. <laughs> True. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, I'm going to, you know, I do have to go to 10 sleep. We kind of went sort of close to it, but I, I do want to get up there because I have formed these prejudices that are, are not founded in any sort of uh, experience with mm-hmm. it. So I would like to get up there, but I, I just don't see going there in the dead of summer. It seems like, like everywhere else, like the fall would sound dreamy up there. Yeah. It could be. It ain't any, at least this summer, it ain't any cooler there than anywhere else. Like yeah. it got, it was in the hundreds up in Bozeman and stuff this last week when yeah. we were there. Yeah, so I mean, it's got to be boiling hot there too. It gets pretty hot, but it also you can it gets high too. Like right. you get some elevation and some nice breezes. At, yeah, at night. Well, the interesting thing about Wyoming and actually southern that whole part of southern uh, Montana is there's tons of limestone. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of it is on uh, reservations. Oh, really? And not that that's like means it'll never be climbed on, but it'll it involve a lot of sort of negotiation. Yeah. Although I think it might be fruitful. Yeah. You know, it, you know, if you could, you know, make the big case that climbers have always made that will bring all this money to the area, yeah, which yeah. is not always the case. Although it's becoming more the case than it was 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, where people do actually want amenities that they'll pay for. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's seems so like there's much that, limestone. It seems like there's that like kind of r- interesting divide up in Ten Sleep right now with the ranching community kind of being like, you know, what the hell is going on here? Right. And entrepreneurial people are like, oh, how can we like, you know, leverage this instead of just griping about the mm-hmm. changing mm-hmm. culture in our little town? And 
but then climbers coming in and just kind of setting up the things that they know other climbers are going to like and being really successful with that. So I don't know. I could see a, it's like pretty mellow, but there is a simmering little undercurrent of tension there. Well, I think that's always been going on in Lander. Yeah. And you know, they've, they've sort of settled it. But not entirely, mm-hmm. and uh, it flares up now and again. And they had like they had Knowles sort of lay the groundwork there long before it was any sort of climbing mecca. Yeah, there was already these people, you know. And yeah, I mean, there you know, there's stories from slightly older climbers' fests where, you know, late at night, you walk by the wrong bar and like people get completely. Uh, sucker punched across the side of the yeah, face yeah. just because you yeah know? just because yeah i mean like you have to picture the the kind of attitude that it would take to just say no to someone and letting them in and try your route and where you would bring that into other areas of your life mm-hmm. and you can imagine that the 10 sleep ranching community probably doesn't take too kindly to that kind of bullshit <laughs> yeah. there there is this fallout because climbing is so popular and, you know, our crags are getting more crowded. And so people, I think, a little bit are getting more territorial and more prickly about just kind of staking out their territory and not letting people. I mean, because like your story you just said about the, the Bajome that climbed that thing, you know, yeah. asked for a belay. Like you were in a three group and this person walked up and said, hey, can I give this a go? Like, I just want to like give it a try. And like they spent an hour and a half doing whatever on it, which we've seen then, you know, you could be get to the point where I'm not letting anybody cut in line anymore because it, that would totally, like, jank up your whole scene. Yeah. So, but the fact that it was uh, it was sort of a women-on-women women incident is interesting. Yeah. Because I know a lot of women that would be super, like, are very defensive against the bros because the bros can be so terrible. Right. But, yeah, yeah but this is, on, this is terrible. Yeah. Women-on-women, women, you know, uh, rudeness. <laughs> They will not stand. I mean, that's not cool, ladies. You're supposed to build each other up. Yeah. Um, I guess we just need to learn what the new rules are. I mean, if it was you, I'd just be like... I'm like the nicest person at the Craigs. I'd have been behind him doing this, doing the no sign on my neck. Don't let him do it, ladies. Yeah. Well, they would would rightly think that I would be the guy who would take an hour and a half on the route and flailing all over it. (laughs) Probably break off a few key grips too. <laughs> yeah, they're exactly right. They're like, listen, XL boy, <laughs> don't go up and mess up my beta by Get ripping off, all off of, it, of my fucking project. <laughs> Jackie Hefley is co founder of Kilter and a legend in the route setting world. She's done more to improve female presence and representation in route setting than just about anyone else. She's the co-founder of the Route Setting Institute, a CWA route setting board member, and a USAC nationally certified level four setter. I'm definitely one of those people that's more comfortable like behind the scenes than in front of the camera. So that's kind of been what I've sought out um, over the years. And route setting is perfect for that because I started climbing when I was a teenager and I became a competitive climber and and also started setting in my gym and I really loved setting. And so when I aged out of juniors, there weren't really adult competitions. And I mean there were there they were again soon, but there was this really small period of time where there wasn't much. And I just started setting comps instead, like regionals and stuff for USA climbing. 
and just love setting. So I just kind of stuck with that moving forward. And at the time, there really weren't female setters. I was just lucky that the gym I started at, there was a couple guys there that just so happened to have been really early on route setting as far as like looking into setting as more of a an intellectual exercise, trying to examine the movement from a lot of different angles and figure out how to use route setting to really teach climbers what could make setting better, what was good for setting comps, like all these kind of angles about route setting, aspects of route setting that at the time I thought that was how every route setter thought. So I was just in this little gym in Reno, Nevada, and I got, again, I just was lucky. And the guys that taught me how to route set had come from a place where they'd been given a lot of freedom to experiment. Back in like the 90s, there was this group called the American League of Forerunners, the ALF. And then these guys were at the University of Miami in Ohio. Uh, so Ted Welser was the main guy. And then also a guy named Tim Steele and a guy named Bill Kelly were the three guys that were the most influential to me. And they came out of this university where they had, you know, hired Mike Pont and Tony Nero to teach them kind of courses because Mike and Tony were like the kind of the best root setters in the 90s or the most known American setters. So they were trying to professionalize setting in the 90s because. As you guys know, there was kind of a boom in indoor climbing in the 90s and competitions and sponsorships and all this stuff that kind of petered out in the late 90s and then was gone until more recently again. So basically, I was the only woman I knew setting. I moved to Boulder. There was a few women who had set at the spot and stuff a little bit, but I was certainly like maybe more serious about it uh, as a career path. And I started setting for USA Climbing and I met Molly Beard, who was more experienced. She'd actually set the last nationals that I had been in. So that was really cool to get to work with Molly. And for her, it was cool to have another girl because, again, there just were none. And internationally, there basically were none. There was like Timmy Fairfield's wife, Brandy Prophet, had set some events with him. She'd been a competitive climber and she started setting events. So she'd set like X Games in Korea with him. And I imagine there was a couple women in Europe who maybe set a little bit, but it was really seen as a man's job. Didn't pay well, hard on the body. You have to be really strong or understand movement, which I wasn't ever really strong, but I did understand movement. And then also you had to be able to deal with like a very construction site kind of work environment, uh, which is so coming to the what's happening now, a lot of that is changing. So things are becoming a lot more professional. There's a lot more women who are interested in setting, who are seeing setting as a career path that they can have uh, who are setting in gyms. Gyms are creating opportunities through events like Woman Up, also through having clinics. So I was the head setter at the spot in the kind of early 2010s for several years. And then my assistant head setter, Sarah Filler, went on to be the head setter after me. And now Sarah and I have a group called the Route Setting Institute. And Sarah's traveling around and setting at different gyms and doing clinics, um, doing intro clinics, doing advanced clinics, doing resets, doing comp sets. She's doing all this stuff to like bring more women into the sport or into the, the career into the it's not really a career it's becoming a career so it went from like me being able to count the number of women in setting on one hand to me being able to count the number of women who i had working for me at the spot over the time i was there on one hand which is pretty good because so there was like five or six women who came through and worked with me at the spot and at one point we had like three or four so it was almost half our team which was great um to you know i went and did an event in kentucky in 2000 17 and there was a bunch of women that had come to compete in the women it was a setter showdown which is a, a thing louis anderson created it's like a setter competition and it was also a clinic and so there's all these women there and i didn't know most of them and it was awesome because that was like meeting women who'd been setting even for six months or a year who i didn't know yet was just it was great and the male setters that i know are all trying to get women on their teams 
not just for the diversity thing, but because they actually understand the value of having that diversity. So that just looks good, but it actually is good. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is, um, you know, the OIA just recently released a report about this, you know, the demographics of climbing and placed indoor climbing and sport climbing. They kind of lumped the two together with a, a 50-50 parity, essentially, between the genders. Um, I think women were maybe even slightly ahead in that category. And so obviously, you know, there's a, you know, there's this huge presence of of women in climbing gyms and how important it is to have a, a female route setter. Do you need to be, you know, female to set for other females or is this, is this something that uh, males can do with a little bit of training or just understanding of the, the, the female physique whatever it is. I, I'm not really sure what the, how the intellectual aspect of it plays out in terms of the the quality of the routes. And um, so I'd love to know your, your take on, on what the importance is, especially given that there's this huge demographic shift to, to parity in the climbing gyms. Uh, I think there's a lot of stages that root setters go through in learning. So most people, when they start setting, they set for themselves, basically they set things that they think are fun or will be cool or challenging. So that's basically a phase of learning because you're learning to create something. And then through your own climbing, you're experiencing it and you're understanding more about the movement or how the holds function or the moves function or whatever. So you do that phase. Um, and then you get into a phase of like, well, eventually you get to a phase of empathy where you really watch other people climb and you really try to understand what they're going through, no matter what size they are, gender they are, what their strengths are. So I don't think you need to be any gender to set for any gender. It's just helpful if 50% of the people in the gym are women, it's helpful if part of the root setting team has that representation as well. And it's not that women should set for women and men should set for men or whatever, or only men can set the hard women's climbs. It's that people who have a different collection of climbing experiences are going to provide variety. So like if your team is all men, but some of those men have climbed in Fontainebleau and some of those men have only sport climbed in rifle and some of those men have climbed at Smith Rocks or on granite, you're going to get different styles from them. And in the same way, if you have people of different sizes, different heights, uh, different strengths. And so women and men have like different centers of gravity. So automatically, I'm going to feel like more comfortable in certain types of move and you're going to feel more comfortable in other types of moves. So just having that kind of variety built in is very helpful to a setting team because it helps when you're setting and it helps when you're forerunning as well. And also embracing that variety and understanding like what you want for your user base at a gym is a diverse set. So every grade range has a diverse number of roots and boulder problems that they can climb on to warm up and then like challenge themselves. So you got your warm up problems, you got your mid range problems, you can just kind of do laps on or whatever. And then you have your challenge problems and then you want to be able to progress into the next tier. So the bottom end of that needs to be kind of some, we would call them bridge problems, but some problems or roots that people could actually begin to progress to the next ability range in because if you have hard lines where people just hit a wall and they can't progress, like the holds are too hard and the moves are too hard and it's too steep all at once, then people just can't, it's really hard for them to see a way through. So good route setting creates paths to progression for the user base of the gym. And so having a variety of people doing that route setting on the team who are both setting and forwarding those climbs helps create like a really nice, diverse range of climbs, uh, which is going to fulfill the needs of your gym's user base the best. So really you're investing in your root setting team because you're investing in your member base. And if your member base feels served, then they're going to be more motivated to continue being members, which makes your gym succeed, which is what we all 
want in the industry for the industry to succeed. And also because we know climbing is really fun and we want people to enjoy it and get something out of it. And so providing for those people's needs is a great way to do that. So I have a, uh, some questions about the sort of root setting community, which you've kind of, you kind of explained exists. You know, we're, we've been a gym desert up here uh, for, for a lot of years, and now we have a small bouldering gym. Um, but I did work in a gym in, in the 90s, you know, way, way sort of proto. Actually, those rock creations out on the West Coast were kind of very early, you know, sort of big for that time gyms. And also, you know, they just kind of started to really get their systems down as to what it meant to, to be a climbing gym and to, to provide a service for people and to bring new climbers in. That was kind of a new thing that they were very good at and realized that they would, you know, they needed to create a community versus build a gym for climbers that already existed. But back then it was really, I mean, I, we were just talking earlier about how I was involved in making holds and like the hold thing and, and kind of developing that was such the focus that there wasn't really, I don't think this community around what it meant to be a root setter. Are you still, you know, out there having to talk gyms into this idea that, that there, this is a profession in it and it, you know, needs to be done well versus the gym. That's just like, well, yeah, the, you know, the, the 19 year old, 17 year old kid that works behind the desk and set roots just fine. Like, thanks, like beat it. You know, is yeah. that still like an evolving thing? I mean, it's changed a lot. It's definitely way mm -hmm. better than it used to be. We're at a place now where people understand that it's not like you have a root setter or two, like your root setting, your gym should have a root setting department and a root setting mm -hmm. program. And that program should have a head root setter who manages the department and interacts with the other departments. And it should have ideally an assistant head. And then it should have the employees. And then maybe even has a maintenance team that works, you know, in conjunction with the setting team. So that idea is getting out there more. Uh, the idea that that department needs to be provided with resources. So they need to have a space for keeping holds and for washing holds and for fixing volumes and all that stuff. So a tool bench, they need to have their own tools. They need to have safety equipment. They need to have safety training. They need to have space and time in the gym to do their job, including forerunning, which is a third to a half of the day should be forerunning. Those ideas are all, I think probably because of the internet partially and because climbing is kind of booming again, people are understanding those concepts more and more. And also because of events like CWA where aspiring gym owners can come and learn about the industry and they see like there's root setter events, there's root setter talks, there's root setter symposium at these industry events. So they see that this is like a real part of the gym because like you, you're saying, I mean, it used to be like, I'm sure there's still gyms here and in other countries where people, the root setters just set for trade for fun, you know, mm -hmm. but that's you're essentially tr letting somebody trade for a membership and that person is creating the product that your gym provides. Like that's not what you want. So people are seeing the value of and, and paying for outside setters to come in and teach clinics or help with the reset or help with a comp set or help your gym kind of like get up to speed. And there's actually a problem where there's not enough trained setters and experienced setters to fulfill the need in a lot of gyms. So there's people opening new gyms and they don't have anybody who wants to move to this market to live there who also knows what they're doing with root setting. And so there's a lot of people who like mentorship and can't get it. Um, and so events like, again, CWA has clinics before the summit every year you can come to and they have CWA meetups where you can come to a clinic or you can hire the Wrestling Institute to come or you can hire some other right. groups to come. So it's getting better. People are investing in those things. Also, some of these gyms in the middle of 
functionally nowhere as far as outdoor climbing goes, are offering really good salaries and benefit packages to these setters. And even if somebody only wants to live there for a year and get the program on its feet and get some people trained, that could be really beneficial to the gym. And I think the gyms understand that because like you said earlier, you know, you're either moving into a market with existing gyms, which means that you need to be better than those gyms or as good as them, or you're creating a new market. So you're creating climbers. So you're taking people that are going to wander in and check it out and trying to get them to sign up, which means they have to have a good time. And so the other thing that's happening is gyms are understanding that and they're investing in their low, like their low grade climbs. So they're putting money into getting big, cool holds and volumes for the V0 to V4s, because that's what people start climbing on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, and actually even in a gym like the spot in Boulder, the majority of the climbs in that gym are V2 to V6. And that's Boulder where you have many V15 climbers living, but the majority of the climbing population in a climbing gym needs those kind of low to moderate grades to spend most of their sessions on. Even the strongest climbers are going to warm up on some of that stuff. So uh, all these things kind of being important. People are talking about it more. Um, People are interacting online with other gyms and seeing this. And then people are actually implementing new, new policies in their gyms and trying to like turn these ideas into how their gym functions in a way that hopefully will help these new gyms succeed. Cause that's what we really want. I mean, we're having a boom right now. If gyms open with like, they spent no money on holds and they spent no money on roof setting. And it's not that fun to go there. They're not going to do very well. And then it's a waste of money. And so we want to help people that are coming into this industry succeed in the industry. So the money is well spent basically, but also, so we have these new climbing communities and we're fostering a growth in the industry that we want to see. We had a, a show during the like the March and April lockdown last year, which was basically like gloom and doom that, you know, half the climbing gyms in the country were suddenly just going to go under and become, you know, rusty warehouses or whatever. That doesn't seem to have come true. Is that what's your take on on COVID? Did ever, did for the most part the industry weather it or um, did a bunch of places go under? No, actually, not very many went under, surprisingly. But we're going to see this year what happens because I think okay. we're in a place now of recovery, hopefully. But I mm-hmm. think people missed climbing. I think people did build home home walls and bought kilter boards and other boards for their houses. But even if you have that, it's still nice to have a gym membership. It's nice to have mm-hmm. both. It gives you options. It gives you variety. So I think that overall, things went better than expected. Like with kilter, we actually offered a special... In conjunction with our gym, with with gyms, where if because members, some of the gyms members continue to pay their membership or pay to reduce membership, they had like a deal set up where people could help support the gym, even though the gym had to be closed because it really was kind of nobody's fault. And gyms found different ways to like incentivize this for their members, but a lot of members were like, "I want that gym to be there when this is over, and I'm just going to pay my membership, and because I want that to still be there." And so we offered a deal where. Um, if you were paying your membership at a gym and you wanted to buy home wall holds, we gave people an extra discount. We gave them a special mm-hmm. code through the gym to help them see the connection to supporting their gym, getting them this discount. And also to help the gyms feel supported because there wasn't that much we could do. We couldn't fundraise for the gyms, all the gyms across the country. Like we were trying to stay alive as well. But we could kind of do something like that to help the gym's community support it or be incentivized to support it a little bit more or thanked for supporting it, however you want to look at it. So I really think people rallied around their climbing gyms in these different communities because most people remember what it was like to not have a climbing gym in their community. And we want that gym to be there now. I mean, I think some gyms also changed hands was the other thing that happened. 
didn't outright close, but remember the owners changed. Honestly, the takeaway that we've had so far is that the industry is a lot healthier than we thought it was, or at least it's a lot healthier. Like there's some depth to people's pockets, basically that what didn't used to be there. We had zero hold budget in gyms I worked at for basically forever, like barely had any hold budget. I had 200 bucks once and I called soil and I was like, I have $200 and I'm going to give you the whole thing. And they were really gracious about it because in retrospect, I realized <laughs> now that that's like, that's you know, <laughs> yeah. But at the time it was just like, I just had no money ever for holds, you know, and I found ways to like make deals or we could do comps and we would like do promotion. And, and we were, it was a small industry at the time, but like, yeah, it was just, things have changed a lot in that way as well. But yeah, I think people, people want their climbing gyms to be there. I mean, it's just so much more fun if you need to like work out to go like run some laps at the gym than it is to like, for me at least, like go run on a treadmill. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I will go try to do 10 routes in an hour. I want to pivot the conversation to the elite level route setting at the competition level, especially in the lead up to the Olympics. And I'm, I'm interested in getting your your take on uh, where the the route setting team for the Olympics stands and and your, you know, maybe hopes or concerns about what what's happening for the Olympics coming up this summer. Um, but before we get there, I just had kind of a weird question that just popped into my head as you were talking earlier about the importance of route setters. And do you foresee a, a future where, you know, route setters are maybe more prominent in terms of their personality and individuality such that there's like celebrity route setters? So, you know, you can imagine going to a cliff and being like, Oh, that's a Chris Sharma route. Oh, it's so cool. It's like historic, but at the gym level, it would be like, Oh, that's a Jackie Heffley route. Like we have to, there's a Jackie Heffley route at this gym. We have to go try it while it's up or something like that. Do you, do you foresee that level of celebrity ever coming to the route setting world? I had the same question actually, when she was talking about the yeah. community, I'm like, are there like superstar setters that, <laughs> that, that will, will, will emerge? I literally had yeah. the exact same question. So, well, it's a funny answer because there are, you guys just don't know about it yet. So I guess it's only in our little nerdy circle that people know about <laughs> these setters. Who are, who, who are the all-star route setters? Besides yourself, of course. You know, honestly, the biggest compliment that I've had in route setting has been people that had climbed at gyms where I've worked after I left and had been like, hey, we really miss you. And it's like, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that I was giving some value. This place um, sucks now. No, I mean, look, there's <laughs> no, always going to be disgruntled customers. And I certainly feel that the teams in place after me did a good job. So, but it is nice to feel missed. But yeah, so like, okay, um, here's the thing is it's really political too, right? So some of the people that are kind of superstar root setters, are they better than other root setters? Or are they just create or are given more opportunities? It's hard to say, but certainly practice makes perfect. And so there's some people that are very experienced setting like international level comps. and there may be some issues associated with that in terms of uh, the climbs seeming too similar over the course of time, but they're still very experienced, good setters. Um, but let, let's just, just tiptoe around that for a minute. Uh, there's a guy named Tonde who you guys maybe haven't heard of, but every root setter has. He's a French guy. He actually lived in the U S and maybe Canada for like at least 10 years. I met him because he was doing a, he before he was anybody anybody knew he had come to the u.s and he was just trying to set in gym so he and his girlfriend at the time he's now his wife they have kids they were traveling around and he was going into gyms and literally walking in and being like my name's tone day i'm this french root setter i would love to just set in your gym for the day for free just 
meet your setting team or whatever. And some gyms were like, cool. And a lot of gyms, because this is like this old attitude everybody had, were like not interested at all in this person getting Sounds to, like a liability. Yeah. Well, no, it kind of does. But at the time, it wasn't, that wasn't as much of an issue, honestly. Um, yeah, like I wasn't the head setter at the spot at the time. And I found out about this because the head setter had been like, I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with that. But the owner, Dan, who's really committed to the industry, he was like, hey, man, come in this other day. So I actually came in the day that that, got, that Dan had set up for Tony to come in and I hung out with him because I wanted to meet him and see what he had to say, you know. And then I invited him to come set a pro comp that I was setting at the trade show that summer. I was like, just show up and we'll like put you to work, basically. And he did. And we did. And he was awesome. He set this like all volume climb, which at the time was like revolutionary because people it was like this was still i mean the climbs were put together from a bunch of different holds the gym had that didn't even look the same and that was like the best we could do at the time but tone days had this like awesome all blue and he painted them all blue we painted it blue and then we painted the other volume in the wall blue and all the volumes were blue and that all sounds like so normal probably to you guys but like it wasn't it was different it was it stood out more it looked cool and we he like stapled we like stapled some grip tape to the volumes to grab because they were wooden volumes. And like, again, that's, no one's going to find that surprising now, but at the time it was super surprising. It was like 2009 or 2010. Like that was not something people knew to do. And there were problems. Like the grip tape started sliding and we were just kept adding staples to it. And people were trying to like pinch where the staples were, you know, like we were experimenting, but so, so somebody like Tone Day went on to work with the Seattle bouldering project and do a lot of clinics and, he has a lot to say. He has a lot of interesting perspectives, and he's certainly worth listening to and learning from. Um, and in France, uh, Jackie Godoff is obviously like a father of bouldering over there, and he's also a father of root setting. So he wrote a book. I bought one of the first copies when he released it about his perspective on root setting. And he's got a really cool, lighthearted kind of approach, which is let's experiment. And that's one of the things that you see with root setters is the newer root setters know everything. and the more experienced root setters are definitely in this different place of like, yeah, let's see what happens. Like, I don't know that. I don't know everything. You realize all the things you don't know. You realize like the value of experimentation. So, um, so Jackie got off as somebody that everybody basically looks up to because he's just really a cool guy and he's got a cool perspective. Well, back to Tone Day. It helps that he has a single name. I think that's <laughs> yeah. You know, that's his last like... name's Kai. Is like it's like I can't say it right. Probably it's K A T I. But just walking around is cool. like. He's just I'm, cool. I'm Tone Day. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, that's like, it's like good Madonna branding is all or, I'm saying. Yeah, it's like yeah. Madonna or Sting. No, yeah, and he's no. got like cool hair and he's got this whole <laughs> yeah. sensei vibe and it like works for him. And like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a great, he's like a really, he has a lot of value, but unfortunately, like I said, things are really political. The IFSC shut him out in his country. He should be setting these big events and he never got the chance to. So he did provide a lot of value to commercial route setting, but he hasn't been embraced in the way that I personally think he probably should have given his not just skill set, but perspective. Okay. So, so who are the good little boys and girls who are on the, the root setting team for the Olympics? Oh, so, okay. So here's the interesting thing with the Olympics. They actually kind of came in from left field and they picked the head or one of the head setters is a Polish guy. I had never heard of him before, but there's kind of a whole group over there trying to do kind of like build their own professional situation he's one of those people his name's adam and so it's like 
Well, there was one woman on the crew, which was Katja Vidmar, who's a friend of mine from way back in Waco. We used to climb together and she was a coach and she was on the Slovenian team. And then she started setting and now she's one of the owners of 360 with her partner, Simon. And they just had a baby. So she was on the Olympic team and she actually, because it got delayed, she got pregnant and decided to have the baby instead of being on the Olympic team. So she stepped out. So the American now, we have an American, which is Gary Greger on the team. Uh, there's a Japanese guy. I should have this list, but I don't. So I didn't know you were going to ask me specifically who they are. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just like five or six people. And it, it specifically is not, there's a couple guys that have been setting most of the World Cups and they also own hold companies. And it's very obvious because you see a lot of those holds in the World Cups and you have for like the last four or five years. Uh, and they're not on the team, which is surprising because they are, I mean, the IFSC uses them partially because they know they're going to get the job done. And that's kind of what you need because we are still growing and there's just not infrastructure in place to take advantage of all the opportunities that the industry basically presents now with the number of experienced setters interested in doing these kinds of jobs. Just to bring it back to um, what we started talking about with female root setters. <laughs> so it sounds like Katya was the the one female on the Olympic root setting team, but she's, she's uh, not going to be there because of she, because she had a baby. So did they have another woman coming in or are they just going to go? No, there aren't really know. any other women, even honestly, that are that are in the position to to do that. They could have an intern, but I think for the Olympics, they don't even want to do that. I Like somebody like me, I'm not in shape right now for one thing, but also like I kind of took a different path. Uh, there are not very many women who've set a lot of high level comps even still. Flan, Flan would be a good choice. Flannery sets for USA Climbing. She's super strong. She does climb moves a lot that the guys can't do. So she isn't necessarily like the best representative of female climbing style because stylistically she's so strong that like she's really good at power and dinos in a way that is great, but isn't like, Oh, we want someone who's just amazing at slabs. Um, not that she's bad at slabs, but she's just, she's really good at power. So, but Flannery would be a choice. Um, she'd be the only woman I can think of who would even be qualified. And then, there's a French competitor, Melissa Lenneve, who's a really awesome person. And she was a great World Cup competitor for years. And she is phased out of competing and she's been setting more. So I could see her being a really good candidate in the next couple of years to start doing these kinds of events because she has so much experience at high level events competing in them. And she's still climbing really strong. So I think she would be a great choice. And I imagine some of these young girls are so many strong young kids now that I imagine some of them are going to make this transition as well especially because setting is something people see as a, a job they could have. And it's really interesting. It makes your climbing better. Any competitor would benefit from learning to root set and spending some time root setting. You just understand things a little differently when you do that. So I think that there is a future in it. But for this event, they did not have a candidate that I can think of. And so I think when Katja stepped aside, then, well, maybe, again, Flan. But I think that even within USA Climbing, you know, they picked somebody senior who also probably would be a really good forerunner across ropes and bouldering. And, uh, and so they went with Garrett Greger, who was a good choice. He's set for a lot of these strong young people and he's very fit himself. So, and it's kind of cool to have a U.S. person on the team because we didn't have a U.S. person on the team at all originally. But right now the, the website says Percy is the head. He's British. He's super experienced. Been doing this a long time. Uh, Manu, who is one of the owners of Flathold. So he's one of the guys who has been setting all these comps lately. Man is a very strong outdoor climber, so um, he's very experienced. Uh, Katya, as I said, she stepped out. She's had a baby. And then Romain, who's a French setter, who also, he had a company that made holds 
that were like wood with texture on them that were just really beautiful. There were some in Vail two years ago, and that was kind of not something people were doing. And now a lot of people are doing it. But for a few minutes there, it was like kind of revolutionary look. They made some Holzer cheetah too, I think, and or someone else did. And it's like the plywood with like the colored texture on it. That was something yeah, we, that his little company did. We have some of those holds in, in the Carbondale gym. Yes. Rizio yeah. is a great, a great hold uh, nerd. He loves holds, yeah. which is awesome. So when you say you have to be really strong to be a route setter, you have to forerun. Does that mean that you have to actually send the problems or is it, do you just have to give a sense of like, I think this is possible you know, I'm climbing at a level where I know how hard, you know, the Adamandras of the world are climbing that I can, I can give, like, how do you gauge that, that difference between I'm setting for the hardest, the best climbers in the world. And I'm, you know, clearly at a lower level than that, but like how close do you have to be to that cutting edge to, to be an effective route setter? I didn't mean to say that you have to be strong to be an effective route setter. You certainly do not especially not in a gym because a gym needs climbs for a huge variety of abilities for comps. It's useful because, you know, you do need to be able to try the moves or people need to be able to try the moves. And if you have a small crew, you don't have extra people to forerun. So you have to do it, which is kind of where you end up with these really strong setters. Um, but I think it's more about understanding movement and studying movement than it is about being able to do all the moves. So it's, and that's something that comes with time with setting. For me personally, I spent years setting comps for like Daniel Woods and Alex Puccio from when they were teenagers into adulthood and Megan Mascarenas who won World Cups and Nina Williams and Paul Robinson. So these athletes have climbed much harder than I ever have and much harder than any other route setter has really either for the most part because people are climbing at that top level. They're generally going to be in the comp. They're not going to be setting the comp. <laughs> so you just need to be able to understand it through study and empathy and practice. And so I think that. It's really like, I mean, I can, I can work with forerunners, even if I don't know them very well, I can watch them get an idea of how they're performing and gauge a climb that I've set for Daniel and Paul to separate Daniel and Paul. And I can separate them usually using forerunners and not listening to the things the forerunners say, just watching what happens with their bodies. And that's kind of like what is really interesting and nerdy about root setting is really like studying the movement, understanding the movement, understanding the athletes. So like, if you know the athletes are going to be at the comp, you can predict what's going to happen. And like, it's always educated guessing, even at the top levels, but you can do a fairly good job, which is why you get a decent result in a lot of comps. And sometimes you're just wrong. We had a forerunner once do a move immediately and repeatedly that no one in the comp, including Chris Sharma could do in the comp. So, and the forerunner was like, it was Chuck Freiberger. Who's like a old school Colorado climber, strong climber, not Chris Sharma strong. You know, but it was just a weird thing. So you got to look out for that as well. You have to try to understand if your foreigner has a secret skill that, you know, that you don't know about because then you get a bad result in the comp. I'm sure Chuck is still telling that story to this day. <laughs> he may not remember it, but I'm telling you the root setting team does. I would be. I certainly would be. <laughs> yeah. I've seen I I also seen, this interview with it. <laughs> yeah. No, I've also seen Chuck do like crazy, scary high. Like we spotted him on some in Waco once that, I mean, there was a certain point where we were all like, man, do not fall off. Like there's nothing we can do down here. And uh, Chuck's just, a, he's like one of those underground strong climbers. And you get a lot of them in root setting as well. But again, with practice, you generally can guess what the field is going to be able to do. And like, I, and there's, there's certain athletes too. Like, so Garrett Gregor, 
he was a competitor back when I was setting like with USA climbing and some other pro comps. And Garrett was somebody who like, wasn't going to win the comp generally. Like he maybe could have, if he had a really good day cause he was quite strong, but Garrett was like a ringer because we knew that there were certain moves that feel like we weren't hundred percent sure about the move. We're like, well, Garrett will do that move. So we know that that move's going to get done in the comp. And if Garrett does it, there's a good chance that one of the guys that's like potentially going to beat him will do it too. So like, We'll get, we'll try it. There's, you know, four problems or five problems. You can take a risk like that. So it's kind of been cool to see him. I worked with him in spot two for years. It's been cool to see him go on to like, you know, working on the craft more. Um, I was a bit of a, you guys just gotta, you're gonna have to have to cut, you're gonna have to cut this, I guess. Cause I'm just like, you know. <laughs> no, this is great. It's fascinating. Actually. It's really it's, nerdy. It's, well, no, it's, I, I love that it's nerdy. It's, it's, I had no idea, you know, and again, like, I've been in, you know, in and out of gyms, but I've never belonged to a gym since, since I worked in those ones in, in the nineties, I never belonged to one until there's the one here. So this has actually been really fascinating and more in depth than I, I ever imagined. So thanks for that. Um, but what gets you like charged up in your personal climbing right now? Just getting to climb. Don't say nothing. Honestly. No, like, so here's the thing. I love, I love rock climbing. I spent most of my twenties and my early thirties, like setting for like setting as much as I could writing for magazines and going climbing as much as I could. So I like hit some personal goals with climbing. I felt really strong in like my late twenties, my early thirties did some stuff that I didn't, I, you know, I, when I started climbing, like you have to understand that like if a man climbed B10, it was in the magazines. Mm-hmm. So like my mental barrier for like, what was like, expected was much lower because you know like i knew like two people had to climb 513 and like i did a 513 and that was like a huge deal for me then i come out you know meet meet other people younger people um who've had a different experience and they're like oh yeah like yeah, i'm just gonna warm up on this like 12b and i was like you warm up on 12b because i'm like from donner summit where like you do not warm up on 12b at donner summit like <laughs> it's just very technical so anyways uh coming from that i was really Happy to kind of, I turned from a sport climber to mostly a boulder and definitely like kind of hit, hit some of my own goals with that. And then realized that as much as I loved everything I was doing, I wanted to also do more, um, which is kind of when I started focusing on like, I committed to being the headset of the spot. So I was staying around a little more, but I was still climbing a lot. And then I started doing kilter and then kind of transitioned into kilter full time. So my personal climbing goals are like setting cool stuff on the kilter board getting out when I can and just trying to have a good time and like not tweak myself since I'm like, you know, your mental level is higher than maybe your physical level is if you like haven't been climbing as much as you'd like to be. So just trying to remember no, that. As dads, have we fun. have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm sure you guys don't, especially not with kids and jobs. Yeah, exactly. So you're just like hit a point where like, I loved my life. I loved doing the things that I was doing, but I also felt like I should be doing more. And now with kilter, it's really cool because I feel like, and with the Rousey Institute, and, you know, all these related things, I feel like I can try to help create things in this industry that, like, I know should be here from the years of experience that I've had in the industry leading up to now. So I started in 1998, which, as we all want to have started earlier than we started, but I basically start. I climbed, like, once or twice before then, but I really started climbing in 1998, and I've been setting since then as well. And it's just cool to be in this position to, like, with Kilter, especially with Ian's talent with shaping, like we can make whatever. So we're just really able to get these ideas that we have out to like make comps better. You know, like here's adjustable holds, complex holds. You can set a route and you can just change the blockers and then make the hold harder or easier between rounds instead of having to like strip and set a whole new problem. You can just change the blocker between girls A and boys B or something. 
Uh, that's revolutionary. People don't understand it yet. They don't know how to use it yet. They don't. I've heard people kind of, some people that have don't quite get it. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. It seems kind of like whatever. And you're like, you just don't understand how it works. And they will. And so we'll get there. It's always slower than we want it to be, but it's just cool to have the opportunity to like create these things or like with the kilter board, like moonboard's awesome if you're strong, but that's, you know, less than 20% of a gym population. So we want, we built a board that was like, we want the kilter board to be something that a gym owner can invest in. You buy this board and you, you give us this space, this 12 foot wide space. And then 95% of your gym population can climb on this board. It's adjustable angle. There's holds of all different types. There's stuff for little kids. There's stuff for like Jimmy Webb. You know, it's just, we're trying to create things to help the industry grow and succeed and be better. And it's just really cool to have that opportunity to do that with something you love. And we're lucky with climbing because it's pretty young. And like, you know, what you guys are doing with the podcast, like you're getting information out there. You're bringing light to things that people might not even know to ask about. And it's cool. Like it's what our responsibility is as older people in the, in the industry, I think is to kind of like create this and build off of what people before us did for the next generation. So more than my personal climbing, which I love, I just feel like it's more important to like do bigger things or things for more people or something like that. Now that I'm, I'm not 40 yet, but I'm definitely older than, than when I spent all of my time like sleeping in the back of my car <laughs> and climbing. John Long's life is bigger and stranger than any adventure you've ever heard, which is why after all these years, he manages to keep pumping out amazing tales that keep us at the edges of our seats. His latest book is Icarus Syndrome, and it leads with one of the craziest climbing stories I've ever heard. Take a listen. Icarus Syndrome by John Long Nine more hours to Heathrow. She was the only person sitting in first class, coiled in a window seat. I glimpsed her coming out of the bathroom stall up front, behind the pilot's cabin. When I paused in the aisle and she glanced over with her rowdy green eyes, I knew that was her. Which was impossible, because she was dead. If you want to hear the rest of this chapter, including the moment where Largo comes up against one of the most harrowing life-or-death decisions you can imagine, join us on Patreon. For as little as $5.14 a month, you'll get access to bonus episodes like this, as well as far less heavy ones where Chris and I just rant about stupid shit. This is the best way to show your support for the show, so head over to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Today's final bit is an original composition from listener Raymond Bonner, and I'll let Raymond explain the rest. Oh, and should you too, dear listener, wish to submit a final bit, feel free. We've skewed to music lately, but any interesting audio nugget may make the cut. No guarantees it'll make the show, but you'll at least have an audience of two. Now here's Raymond. My name is Raymond. I typically play music on an acoustic guitar, uh, but two years ago I took a Knowles course, and part of that was in the Wind River range. And in my 23 days in the winds, I learned how to play a ukulele that one of my instructors brought, and thus I ended up writing a song on that ukulele called The Winds.
line from the driveway and scrape or two as the cooler starts to melt and the winds they come alive these features sing my name these feelings shape my Can you feel the grand adventure? Can you hear the trees? Do they know my name as the birds they sing to me? Can you feel the grand adventure calling out to me? Scrambles leading up the surf to Nanotuck's vertical sheer face. As the first mate's looking down, within the cracks we found our place. Crossing Talus and the snow, while the winds they come alive. These feelings sing. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. 
and I'm Chris Calouse, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. My email is Andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is Chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.